the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, thank you, sir, and a good afternoon to you. Five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m., and we're back with you once again for another edition of Lifeline. Tomorrow's our anniversary. I'm not sure... Uh, Nate, what you've got in planned, uh, you know, for the evening, a little champagne, perhaps something celebratory, you know, uh, these listeners, not I don't mean for me, I mean, for the, for the listeners, I mean, thir- 31 years of this torture, you ought to deserve <laughs> at least a little something to ease the pain, right? <laughs> well, regardless, great to have you with us. We've got a great show planned for you tonight. A little bit later on, a longtime friend of the program is going to join us. Brooks Gibbs, who we now have to, with all appropriateness, use his appropriate title, Dr. Brooks Gibbs. My, my. He is now a um, psychologist. And we're going to talk about helping kids deal with the challenges of this current day. I mean, if you think the parents are dealing with a lot of stress in relationship to the economy, the election, what's going on in relationship to this uh, deadly health threat with COVID-19, and so much more. How about kids? How do children who don't have necessarily the skill set that we do, and we as adults feel challenged, how do they manage to deal with all the stress? Well, we're going to spend some time diving right into that very topic. I think it's going to be a fascinating and very insightful conversation, and uh, we'll get to uh, that visit with psychologist Dr. Brooks Gibbs coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. want to lead off, though, with some numbers. What a fascinating week it has been. We wrapped up um, a week ago, just heading into the election on Friday with the Dow at 26,500. And then watch this interesting trend. Monday it closed at 26,840. Tuesday, Election Day, at 27,479. Now, you would think with the conclusion of the election and the fact that we all went to bed not knowing who the President of the United States would be come January, that the markets would be upset. But in fact, just the opposite happened. Wednesday, the markets closed at 27. 854, and we've seen this three, four, five, six hundred point increase virtually day by day. Well, at the end of the day, what exactly does all of this mean? And uh, what's the market sort of calculating here in terms of the sense of uh, uh, political question mark that we're all feeling? Well, Premier Advisor with Vitucci and Associates, Alex Perry, joins us to help us understand. Let's first begin, Alex, with uh, a bit of an update in terms of what did the markets do today? Hey, thank, uh, thanks, Craig, again for uh, having me on, and also a happy anniversary. Thirty-one years, so that's, thirty-one years shows you how run. shows you how tolerant the run. listeners can be. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, some of the best in the Bay Area. But with regards to like the um, the market performance, the Dow Jones uh, throughout the week has been up of almost two percent. The Nasdaq almost two and a half, uh, two point five actually, and the S and P also about two percent. And you would think, like you stated to, with it's so much uncertainty about this election, and I've been watching it all day on the edge of my seat, <laughs> biting at my nails for the most part. Um, as there, there's not really a clear winner, as Biden seems to be going ahead, it's still, you know, a lot of states are still coming in with votes. And with so much um, uh, skepticism around the election itself, with his mail-in ballots, you'd think the markets would respond a little bit more negatively. And that was my anticipation going into it, especially with such a bloody October we saw with markets dropping, you know, right under our feet and then kind of bouncing back into this uncertain election. It's kind of you know, has me scratching my head a little bit, but my thought is just, you know, with Biden protect, um, like a projection with Biden, he's a, a big pro-stimulus guy, and that's what I think the market is really calculating is the fact that the stimulus is coming in the future, be it a Trump or Biden presidency, that there is going to be more stimulus. And I feel like that's what this response is to, um, that whoever wins, at least we're getting more money from the government to help kind of prop us up as we're in this still COVID economy. Is there also a sense perhaps as Wall Street is watching all of this, you know, there have been a lot of talk prior to the election about, oh my goodness, a Biden presidency could be disastrous, raising taxes, things of this sort. And yet, as we've watched not only the narrowing of the lead between Trump and Biden reverse, and now looking more and more like it may be a Biden presidency come January, we've also seen the the lead between Senate and the House narrow as well, which kind of suggests, well, we might be heading into a period here of some gridlock. And I'm wondering if if that is perhaps interpreted by Congress, I'm sorry, by Wall Street is a good thing, meaning that, well, if it's more difficult to get consensus in Washington, D.C., maybe that means uh, engaging crazy policies, fiscal policy that seems to be uh, uh, more on the socialist side, less likely with uh, narrower margins and therefore less concern by investors that we could be seeing uh, really crazy decisions that could negatively impact the economy. Do you think they're kind of interpreting it that way? Gridlock means no bad things going on because nothing is going on? Um, yes and no. Um, I think the gridlock for one part, putting through um, fiscal legislation in the future, will play a, a nice play into um, Wall Street as maybe Biden's tax plan that he's been touting might not get pushed through. Um, but in the sense of stimulus, gridlock is not something the American people really need right now. Um, as we've seen, you know, PPE loans are running out and, you know, a uh, common consensus of what that stimulus might look like will be the best. I think both sides are kind of working amicably to kind of find that solution. Um, but I think that is kind of the point as of right now, that might be a cause to this, uh, this market upside we've been seeing in the last few days that, I mean, all my clients have been very much enjoying as they were very, very uh, bearish going into this election with so much skepticism and uncertainty and as we've seen in October, so much volatility. Let's talk a couple of market specifics. There was much buzz uh, leading up to certainly last week with uh, the much-anticipated IPO uh, by Ant, owned by Jack Ma, of course, one of the founders of Alibaba. Um, that was reported to be a $37 billion IPO. 
But uh, it sounds like he ran into his own problems in terms of statements made concerning the Chinese financial system, referring to banks there as having a, quote, pawn shop mentality. And uh, mm-hmm. now the the, um, the regulatory agencies are investigating him, and that whole IPO has been put on the back burner. Contrast that with another interesting IPO as Airbnb is announcing that they may be moving ahead with an IPO on the NASDAQ. And I've got to really wonder, gee, uh, Alex, in the day and age of, of COVID with so few people traveling, and I have to wonder, is this being done because maybe Airbnb needs a big influx of cash right now? That could be, that's a great point. I mean, to kind of touch on, the both, um, on both things that you brought up, for example, with the Ant IPO, I've always been kind of skeptical when you have a uh, system of closed information. The Chinese uh, keep their, you know, their financials pretty close to uh, hand. You know, they don't really show us what's going on. And when you do a, a global IPO like that, you need to have our regulatory agencies kind of intervene, look at the SEC to make sure that everything's above board. When I worked in auditing, I worked on a few IPOs, and the S1 filing is strenuous. You're going back many quarters to analyze past statements, past um, revenue, and then you kind of anticipate uh, projecting that forward. There's teams of people that work on this, and if you're not forthright with information, it raises a lot of skepticism, and I feel like that's kind of what's happening here, is maybe this wasn't as good as as, as people anticipated. Um, With regards to your um, Airbnb um, comment, that's that's a great point. Um, uh, One of the main causes for a company to go IPO is to raise an influx of cash to help them either grow or sustain their current operations. With travel being at all-time low and Airbnb being obviously travel-oriented, it makes it really difficult for them to kind of stay afloat. And I've seen massive firings and um, furloughs across that company. As I've had friends that work there that lost 25 to 30%, 40% of the department. So that's a great point there. That could be a, a way of them kind of keeping their head above water as they wait out 2021 and see how these shutdowns might be coming out. If there's going to be more, as we've seen record COVID cases now popping up post-Halloween, it could be a great way, like you said, to kind of keep them going. Final question, Alex. Uh, Tomorrow we'll have 55 days left in the year. And when you remove it out of that equation, uh, time off over Thanksgiving, certainly the Christmas and New Year's holiday, we're going to get busy, even though we might be staying closer to home. It's still a very busy time of the year. And there are a number of critical decisions that need to be made by investors before the new year is rung in, if they're going to be able to to take advantage of of some of the opportunities at, um, you know, last minute review of their investment. What do you recommend? What should investors be thinking about as we approach tomorrow, 55 days and counting till the end of the year? Um, great question. I mean, the first thing is just look at what you got. How did you do this year? Did you make up ahead? Did your portfolio recover since the March drops? And is your strategy and is your comfort level with your risk tolerance the same as it was in January? Some younger people, it could be the same. They're still aggressive. They're still, you know, I have so much more time ahead of me. Or it could have changed. You're retirement plan might be three to four years in the future might been cut by two years now now you're looking to retire to be mid 2021 as everyone's plans evolve you need to be in constant communication on constant communication with your financial professional to give you kind of evolving advice in a sense like what we talked about before we are your financial therapists we're here to hear about your woes and what's a better time to uh, meet with a financial advisor 
than over the holidays, be it over phone, at the very least, or socially distanced in person. So that's what my advice would be, is call, contact your financial advisor. This is a slow time for all of us anyways. Um, have a conversation. Make sure you're both on the same page going into the new year. And if you don't have a financial advisor, you're looking for somebody that can uh, guide you or maybe simply offer a second opinion on where you're at today and how well you're doing on your road toward retirement, um, feel free to make that call. The initial consultation is absolutely without cost or obligation. When you call 888-PLAN-WISE, that's 888-P-L-A-N-W-I-S-E, the offices of Vitucci and Associates. And, of course, you can always ask for Alex Perry, one of their premier financial advisors. Be sure to tune in to Don't In. Invest and Forget with Pat Vitucci every Saturday at 8 a.m. on our sister station, AM 1220, KDOW, the Bay Area's business and money leader. Our thanks to Alex Perry for that update on the markets and your money here on this Thursday. Get a look at traffic for you now. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Talking a moment ago about the impact of the election and the the sense of unsettledness that we all have and its impact on the markets. Well, boy, that's kind of definitive of the entire year called 2020, isn't it? We've seen economic turmoil, political turmoil, turmoil to be sure, deadly health threat, 240,000 Americans dead, five, six times the number of those that die annually from the flu. We've seen people undergo the isolation from friends, family, certainly for kids at school. What does this all mean? If we as adults clearly struggle with many aspects of trying to navigate our way through the year that has been 2020, imagine what's going on with our children. We're going to spend some time talking about that today, and most importantly, how you can help better equip your son or daughter to deal with not just these extraordinary, unusual challenges of life, but many of the everyday challenges, too. Things like not getting along with others, dealing with the school bully on the playground once they get back on the playground, and just overall the occasional not-so-very-nice person that, well, frankly, all of us run into. As adults, maybe we're a little bit better equipped to sort of deal with that psychologically and emotionally, although certainly not always. But for kids, that's a whole different story. So let's get down to cases and spend some time unpacking this very important topic. As I uh, introduce our guest tonight, I, I guess kind of basically say to start with, the doctor is in. First opportunity I've had in, my goodness, 15, 20 years that I've known this guy to introduce Dr. Brooks Gibbs. He is a psychologist, serves on the board of a national youth crisis hotline called the Hope Line, which has seen, certainly under the current turmoil of 2020, a massive increase in students looking for emotional support. He has spoke before over 2,500 school audiences across the country, and its online videos have amassed more than 200 million views. And Dr. Brooks Gibbs, <laughs> great to have you with us, buddy. 
And Craig, when I met you, my voice was still cracking. I've had a <laughs> we've had a long friendship. <laughs> yeah, that goes way back. I, I was reminiscing with a with a coworker today, and and mentioned the fact that it was at one of the the Spirit West Coast events, not long after the tragedy of Columbine, that we first met each other. And um, boy, your your life has really become phenomenal in terms of what God has done in you and through you. Uh, you're now a official author, of course. In addition to being a psychologist, you are a mentor, husband, father of two boys, and uh, the list and the hits keep coming. So, uh, congratulations, by the way, on the the hard work in getting your uh, your degree. Uh, I've got mine, too. I paid $10 for it from some <laughs> outfit down in Modesto. But yours is legit, and we're awfully pleased to have you on the program tonight, Brooks, to really unpack, as I say, a lot of issues that, my, my, children today, I mean, you know, we, we thought it, it was tough when we were kids growing up. And I remember even my dad, you know, telling the old uh, proverbial stories about, oh, you think you've got it rough? I had to walk to school 10 miles in the snow, knee deep both ways, things of that sort. But kids today legitimately are facing challenges because of so much turmoil in our culture and society and world today that is just absolutely unprecedented. And if we as adults struggle to, to keep our sanity about us, I can only imagine how difficult this must be for the average kid. I, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, not only does my heart hurt for what they have to endure with all the changes in their life so abruptly, um, all the no's that they've heard throughout 2020, the things that are most important to them, which is their whole world sometimes, like sports and friendships and all that, or just togetherness, you know, and social interacting. Uh, they're being told no, but it's not only that, and the the mystery of the online challenges that that come with new platforms, new social media networks, and it's just a wild west still online that is in its adolescence uh, days itself. But it's the fact that they have been discipled, trained, educated their entire life, uh, really to view themselves as a victim, to get upset when people call them names to demand that no one excludes them, uh, to absolutely insist that, uh, that no one thinks negatively of them or points out anything that's different uh, you know, uh, than the group. And this concept of total inclusion and you must be nice and trying to enforce that with the anti-bullying laws, it just indoctrinated a generation to not only uh, d- demand that they're entitled to a life without problems, but now they're being discipled to believe that they're entitled to a life without illness or sickness, that the government must protect them from even illness and their feelings. I mean, and they're wondering why they're struggling. And I think it's because uh, the old school wisdom would say, look, in this life, you, you will have trouble. But it's not what happens to you that matters as much as your interpretation of what happens to you. If you can view yourself as advantageous, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. You know, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. If you can see the good and the bad, the upside to the letdowns, if you could leverage adversity for your own psychological growth, man, then then you're going to be able to thrive despite the adversity or adversaries that come your way. And it's interesting because previous generations, and I'm thinking certainly of the great generation that survived through things like the Great Depression, World War II, there was always a sense of the need to develop coping skills, that things were rough, 
and you had to buckle down and get through it. You needed to have a sense of resiliency about you. And if you fell down, you need to have a little bit of a sense of being able to even pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and keep on going. Today, though, as you point out, we have a whole generation, maybe two worth, that have been taught to be complainers, that have been taught that if you don't find things in your life going your way, well, pound the table and make a lot of noise, or maybe even worse yet, uh, respond in violence, as we've seen the increasing trend. <laughs> Boy, how violence has moved from the small, the big screen to the small screen to the streets. Certainly, we've witnessed, sadly, a lot of that this year. And so, sadly, now, this, this generation or two of, I think, both kids and their parents um, who have really come to believe that they are entitled to everything, responsible for nothing, accountable to no one, and if they don't get their way in life, they need to pound the table even louder to get some more attention to eventually persuade people to cater to whatever their whims might be. And that really doesn't build for the kind of character that allows you to be able to get through tough times and and moments of adversary. And, and certainly, boy, if there was ever a day and time when kids need to be prepared of how to um, deal with adversity in life— this is it right now, and sadly, I think we're coming up very ill-equipped for this generation to deal with all this. Which is why I think we have the 1,000% increase in suicide interaction with hotlines like the one, uh, the Hope Line I'm on the board of. It's why we have suicidal ideation higher than ever before, uh, drug abuse, also violence in school, uh, aggression on campus and online, is because they have not just been ill-equipped for coping you know, skills for difficulty, but they've actually been defectively discipled to demand that the world accommodates their preferences. And, and that's really the two ways to look at life. Either I'm going to take responsibility to control what I can, which is usually my interpretation of a harsh reality, or I'm going to demand that the world around me accommodates my preferences. And children are, when I go into a school and I work with kids and I say, hey, look, uh, you are going to have people hate your guts your whole life. I mean, especially the more rich and famous you become, people are not going to like you. And they're like, you should be more positive. I say, I'm positive that the more famous or the more opinionated or the more convictions you have in life, not everyone's going to like you or want to be your friend. That's what I'm positive of. But you can learn to love life despite the challenges and despite the fact that people won't like you or won't view so it, it's a, it really is a battle between the left and the right, uh, demanding that society becomes perfected and solve our problems or taking personal responsibility to be the change we want to see in the world instead of expecting the world to change. If you've just joined us, our guest today is psychologist Dr. Brooks Gibbs. He is a best-selling author. The latest book is called Love is Greater Than Hate. Um, we're talking about not just the current state of affairs of what's going on in our nation today and its impact on our children's psyche and the overall health of America, but most importantly, how we respond to all of this. We'll take a brief time out. When we come back, what of this argument that, well, much of the behavior, the acting out that we're seeing right now amongst kids is all based on the sense that they're just simply in the day and age of uh, COVID-19 at all feeling less secure. 
We'll talk about that and more as our visit with psychologist Dr. Brooks Gibbs continues here on the Thursday edition of Lifeline from KFAX. 532, that means time for us to get you an update on traffic here on the Thursday Ride Home. Here it is now. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back to our conversation. Author and psychologist Dr. Brooks Gibbs is with us today. We're talking about how kids are coping with the state of affairs in America today. You know what's interesting, Brooks, uh, some might argue that, well, part of the problem why you're seeing some of this behavior, the kids are acting out, they're feeling more suicidal, they're more inclined to engage in uh, everything from reckless sex to drug abuse, things of this sort, is just simply they're feeling far less secure. And yet I find it interesting that if we compare it with other generations, for example, the generation that made it through the uh, the Great Depression, they had to live through a time of 25 to 30 percent unemployment with no social safety nets. And if they survived all of that and made it to the age of 18, graduated from high school and then got inducted into the United States military to go serve in the bloodiest war in world history, and they managed to survive. So... If security isn't what's driving all of this, because we can point to moments in history where kids fared a lot better during arguably far less secure circumstances, then does a lot of this have to do with the way we've educated our kids, the way we've entertained our kids, the kind of things that we've exposed them to, both in terms of what they watch on TV, what they experience in uh, videos or in video games and in their socialization in society? I, I do think it's the way we've trained them. Uh, they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And out of good intentions, 20 years ago, we started passing anti-bullying laws that said no one has the right to hurt your feelings. And if someone calls you a name and, and it hurts your feelings or they exclude you from a group and it hurts your feelings, the key is your feelings are hurt. You know, uh, if they push you and there's no pain but it hurts your feelings, well, then uh, the, the, the government authorities, your principals, uh, will will intervene and punish, uh, we'll call that person a bully, we'll label them a name as if they're a, a perpetrator, and, and we'll find a law, write a law, and enforce the law to the full extent of that law. And, and so children say, wow, we even have like an anonymous bully boxes now that they inform on each other without even having to say who they are. And so we've created a culture of victimhood, um, and, and it's an ideology. It's not about stability. It really is an ideology. If I believe that, man, um, I must, uh, I must, you must not frustrate my goals. You must not hurt my feelings. My life must be comfortable and turn out the way I insist. And, and I must receive approval from important people. Here, the must, I mean, in psychology, it's called absolutism or uh, irrational demands. Um, and whenever you have an irrational demand with a, a client, uh, the therapist is to help give up, help the client give up the grip of their irrational demand and adjust to the harsh reality that not everyone's going to like you or want to be your friend. So, so at the core, the, 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 perhaps the, 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 the disconnect here is a sense that everybody else is responsible for how I'm feeling. If I'm having a bad day, it must be because something that you said or did. And even, even if you're not responsible, uh, I'm going to make you responsible for making me feel better. So suddenly everybody else now is, is somehow culpable with how my feelings are. 
Right. And what's insane to me is there's not a single uh, uh, school of psychology that would ever promote such a fallacy. You know, uh, psychology communicates the opposite. And when I teach this to kids all the time, I said, no one hurts your feelings. No one makes you angry. No one pushes your buttons. It's your thoughts about what people do or say, right? In between A and C is the letter B. A is the aggression, someone says they don't like you. C is the emotional consequence you feel. Oh, my gosh, when they said that, my feelings are hurt. And you think A caused C. But in between A and C is the letter B. It's your belief system. The, the activating event has to flow first through your belief system before your emotional consequence is revealed. So you are upsetting yourself in your interpretation of the unwanted event. And, we, and that's where the responsibility lies. Some people say that's victim blaming. No, you can only blame people for doing things on purpose. And kids are not suffering on purpose. But what you do do is show them their responsibility in the matter, and that's to control their interpretation of the unwanted event. And that's what we should be educating children, to change the interpretation of the harsh reality to their benefit so they actually can count it all joy when they fall into various trials. And to, to exacerbate perhaps part of this problem, uh, we have the, the pounding away of pop culture, of entertainment, be it in music or in movies or the video games that children play, uh, that oftentimes will instruct children that the way that they resolve conflict or settle disagreements is by lashing out or with violence I think we've seen some evidence of that played out in the streets, um, certainly over the course of the last six, eight months. Um, and, and, you know, even we've heard reports from the United States military that when they are recruiting uh, young men or women into a branch of the military, they're particularly interested for those who have experience and uh, some uh, ability, demonstrated ability in playing video games. We at, uh, you know... Um, Minecraft, warfare, whatever, uh, because they have a, a built-in not only ability to, to control the trigger, but also a built-in desensitization because they've been exposed to, as entertainment, so much violence that the thinking goes that once they become a soldier that's carrying a real gun with real weapons that's really capable of hurting another person, that they will be less inclined to not pull the trigger in a position to do so because they've been sort of pre-programmed. So you hear things like that and begin to wonder if we're, we're raising a whole generation of children here uh, who are not only very self-centered and demanding of others to um, count out of their whims and make them feel good about themselves, but worse yet, a generation of children that have been taught that any time there is conflict, rather than knowing how to peacefully resolve that conflict or um, analyze it to try to ascertain what the problem is and whether or not it's me or the other person or both of us, but instead leap right to a response in violence. And that has got to be pushing not just children today, Dr. Gibbs, but the entire culture, our entire society, to the precipice of virtual self-destruction. Now, I know that sounds like maybe to some an exaggeration, but am I, am I that far off, or are we headed in that direction? No, I, you know, the biblical view of it is your conscience becomes seared with a hot iron because you're exposed to so much uh, filth and wrongdoing and destruction that you can no longer blush. There's no sense of shame anymore. 
Um, and not only that, but neurologically, you're exposed to, to things like video games like Fortnite that are, this, this amount of dopamine being released raises the, the threshold so much that no longer the simple pleasures of life, playing with your dog, and now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. None of that can even compare to the to the cocktail of dopamine that's waiting for you behind that screen. I mean, it's it's an, you know all things that's in moderation. I'm I'm not one to say uh, don't go online. You know, I, although I do think that there are developmental stages and ages uh, measured according to competency, not necessarily. Uh, you know, age where you could really say, okay, child, I'm going to give you a little bit more freedom to engage in certain apps and, and internet usage and searching. Uh, but, uh, you know, I do believe in that type of control. But, man, uh, we have given the four year old or the three year old or the two year old our YouTube, you know, on cell phone and they're watching Blippi for two hours and they're watching all the associated content and they have become addicted to that type of stimulation. And we're wondering why. Why are, do they not have the mental stamina to think about their thinking? And mm. this is what we need. Be still. Be still and go. You know, know that there's a God that loves you, and you have to take every thought captive. My work with kids, I'm always trying to help them to think about their thinking. That their, their ability to do that is so hindered right now. And, and when we come back after the break, I want to go a little bit deeper into this because it's not just the issue of, of the amount of technology and the content thereof that children are consuming and the way it may be stunting their emotional growth and most importantly, perhaps, alongside that, their capacity to engage in, in real, true human relationships but moreover than things being exacerbated as we're in the middle of the, the health crisis and we find kids that are being isolated, they've been disconnected from um, classmates at school, they are perhaps not associating with um, extended family members, friends, um, all of that coupled with things like, well, stay indoors so they're not getting the exercise that they need. They're being told, you know, you're going to have to study on the computer all day. And then we're done, done after six or eight hours in front of the computer screen on Zoom all day taking their classes. W- what do they seek as relief? They get back on front of the screen, but just a slightly larger one and play video games all day. So the ability to engage in, in true human interaction is extremely stunted. And I think the the warning here is that we're not only raising a very violent generation, but we're raising a generation of, of, of people who don't know how to appropriately interact with other people. They don't know the difference between a healthy versus an unhealthy relationship. And so could we be setting things up for an even greater spike in bullying, in violence, both at home and on the streets, and in more broken relationships? We'll talk about that next. Best-selling author, psychologist Dr. Brooks Gibbs is with us tonight. We'll get you updated on some traffic right now, then back with more on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation. Author, psychologist Dr. Brooks Gibbs is with us tonight. By the way, you can get more information online at brooksgibbs.com. That's Brooks Gibbs with two Bs, brooksgibbs.com. We've been talking about the challenges that 
kids are facing these days. And a lot of it is environmental, just the current state of affairs of what's been going on in our country over the last uh, 9, 10, 11 months, coupled with, quite frankly, uh, a lot of things that parents have allowed that at the end of the day, instead of equipping our children with skills that they need to cope, to relate, to have a better sense of self-value and self-worth, um, failure in doing so is, as we've suggested, creating a whole generation of kids that, uh, well, when they don't feel good, it's somebody else's fault. When they don't get their way or they feel uh, in one way or another that you're not being nice to them, uh, their reaction is uh, a strong one. And, and on an increasing basis, oftentimes leaning in, into violence in order to make their point. And I have to wonder, Brooks, as we continue down this road, uh, what it's going to mean not only for the future of our children, but even the future of our nation. And most importantly, how do we stem the tide? And I want to spend our, our waning moments here focusing on solution-oriented um, approach to this, that the parents have clearly got to rethink uh, not only what they're allowing their children to consume, but also how they're training their children to see and understand themselves and the world around them. Where do we start with all that? I think I think we need to consider who's influencing our kiddos, uh, even when it comes to online gaming. Uh, it's interesting that parents will put their kids in private school, which I think is a great thing for some kids, but then they have no idea that most of their kids' life is lived online with, with, with the strangers who don't share the same values as them. And so, you know, I would have to, I have a pretty much standard blanket rule in my home that um, we don't do those social interactive type of games or, you know, activities unless it's uh, someone that I know, uh, like on Minecraft or something like that. So and I, parents need to not just look, they need to consider the Internet like their neighborhood and say, I'm going to make sure that you're being positively influenced people with the similar values. And because uh, I just dealt with this with a young girl that I'm counseling and her family, uh, who was introduced to a group of other people on the other side of the planet that were feeding this victim mindset and, and, and telling her to invent her own identity and, and her sexuality and her, uh, you know, she was, she was becoming someone that, that, that they were shaping her to become. So the best thing we can do is put up those boundaries again and know that kids' jobs are to push those boundaries and parents' job is to hold those boundaries and, and, and never shame your child or tell them that they're not capable of making good decisions. Just say, I love you so much. I, I know you'll do well. I'm just going to hold you accountable, trust, and verify. So we need to reengage with basic boundaries. Um, the second thing, Craig, is that we need to challenge them when they're speaking lies. When they're saying someone makes me angry, we say, that's not true. You know better. Not that they make you angry. It's what you think about what they did to make you angry. You know, those little things, those nuances to help them realize they're responsible for their feelings, not other people. We all obviously have different approaches to processing stress. And uh, even adults have challenges these days in dealing with uh, so much of the stress that's in the world around us. But for children in particular, as I alluded to, Dr. Gibbs, before the break, that have been isolated from friends and family, school, they're spending six, eight hours a day in front of the monitor, and then they shift to more time in front of the tube 
as entertainment. Um, with things like school sports kind of out of the equation, many of the outlets that would be healthy for them to burn off some energy now missing, what advice can you offer parents in terms of helping to give kids a little bit of a, um, a way to get a little break from some of the stress and how to better manage all that for themselves? Well, I think we need to uh, – one thing that I've learned that parents are having to do right now is not just have a blanket word for screen time, but they need to have compartmentalize it a little better. You have school time, you have uh, entertainment time, you have socializing time. And then uh, break those up because your child, they're going to be on for hours every day on some sort of electronic device. And so if you can help monitor that and categorize that, then you won't develop and communicate some sort of prejudice against all screens. It's not good to do that because uh, then they'll start sneaking and hiding things from you. Uh, but when it comes to managing stress, it's, it's, a, it's a learning to uh, manage expectations. You know, uh, in therapy, what you try to do is get people, identify people's demands. This must have gone my way. I must do this. I have to. They have no right to. Whatever the demand is, and try to help them release that into just a desire and a very light desire. Because heavy desire can become a demand. But a light desire is like, you know, it would be nice if I could be playing soccer with my friends, but I can't right now. And so, um, uh, you know, uh, there's something else that I can do. So if your kid is having a tantrum and he's melting down, I promise you it's because he has had a rigid demand. And the more rigid his demand, the more disturbed he is. So you have to help teach children how to be flexible in their thinking, go with the flow, and be more creative in finding something else to do when they've been rejected once again in the year 2020. As a professional, are you concerned about the socialization of children right now? We know certainly that that some kids have been they've been robbed of a lot. I mean, I, I had a chance in the cap and gown to walk across the stage at my graduation and all the pomp and circumstance and the applause. Uh, the class of uh, of 2020 was denied that opportunity. But moreover, and, and I think this is especially directed toward children that are developing their social interaction skills of suddenly now the the environment to hang out with people their age, either at church or in the neighborhood or certainly at school, uh, has been truncated for the moment. Are, are there concerns that you have that this could have some impact in a child's natural ability to develop healthy relations with with their peers and if so how, how can we how, how can we help kids uh, develop in healthy ways even though we have a, in like a state like California so many societal restrictions at the moment because of covid yeah well god gave uh, those kids a uh, mom and a dad you know family a siblings and so uh, the ones that are in the home the dynamic in the home needs to change if the socialization is limited now mom and dad are friends, and siblings need to be friends. And, and the best way to make that home healthy again is to bring back the old golden rule and to remind each other, hey, we're going we're gonna to be mindful every day to say, are we treating each other the way we want to be treated? And are we proactively gifting each other or affirming each other or blessing each other and seeking to serve each other and really initiating that? That's what kickstarts friendship. So you've got a friendship unit that will help your child survive and thrive during this time of isolation. But if you can get them to socialize, especially in the middle school years, around fifth grade to 
ninth grade. Those are critical years that they need to socialize with like-aged children. Find a way to do it. Get involved in the youth ministry. Zoom rooms are fine for now. They want to talk and chat. Be involved, even in their text threads, if you can, using WhatsApp. Be aware of it. You know, know what they're talking about, and uh, try to choose a friend wisely. But yes, kids need to socialize. Uh, get a puppy. <laughs> I mean, do what they can to kind of pour out so they can share and receive and give love and, 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 uh, and with others. Maybe even a good time to encourage the parents that they too need to turn off the box once in a while and maybe you know pull out some board games and and spend some time in direct interaction and actual conversation with their kids as well. Final question for you, Dr. Gibbs. There are kids, as we've suggested, that may not be coping with this very well. Parents who may be seeing signs that they suspect that their son or daughter is really going through a significantly difficult time right now, and they're afraid that they may begin to act out, and that could be everything from maybe self-abuse, cutting, things of that sort, to to maybe even uh, thoughts strained towards uh, considering uh, suicide because they, they, as you point out, can't put things in proper perspective, have never been given those skills, and so as a result are feeling very trapped and desperate at the moment. To that parent, what is your advice? You have to get their child's thinking clean. Right now it's dirty. It's called cognitive distortion. And so I, I like to say that child needs to be connected with an external brain, a friend, a parent, a grandparent, a, a youth pastor, a counselor, someone whom they can run their thoughts by. And I, I, in other words, words, cognitive dialysis. So if they can kind of verbalize what they're thinking and struggling with, and that goes through the helper's brain, which is clean, and, and it kind of takes away the negative distorted particles. And then you could feed a cleaner thought back to the child, said, well, you know what, I, some wise kids look at it this way. Some wise kids decided to do that instead of that. Then now the child has, oh, okay, they're going to feel better. But what they don't talk out, they're going to act out, and, uh, and that could lead to suicidal ideation. So get them talking and clean their thinking. Dr. Brooks Gibbs, best-selling author of Love is Greater Than Hate, Information available online at brooksgibbs.com. That's brooksgibbs.com. And uh, Dr. Gibbs, I love calling you that. Thanks so much for the time today, brother. Good to visit with you and hope we get a chance to do it again real soon. Thanks for your commitment to the Bay Area. You're really a hero for many people. Thanks, Craig. I appreciate that. You take care now. And uh, love to your dear wife. 6.03 on the clock. Craig Roberts on the radio. Time now for you to get a look at traffic. 